Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. I'm joined today by Judy Zamomra, who is the city manager of Sanibel Island in Florida. Hey, Judy, how you doing? Great. Other than the pandemic and the economic collapse, great. Everything's good. Well, I put on my island style for all those listening in. I am attired in my tropical uh, shirt to, to meet the, uh, the, the setting of this, this conversation. So let's start right there. Life as city manager on Sanibel Island. Um, tell us a little bit about Sanibel. Just give us some context for, for what, it's, what it's like and what makes Sanibel distinct. Well, Sanibel is a world-class tourist destination. We're located in the Gulf of Mexico. You can only access the island by coming over on a causeway. Um, and that was only installed in the 1970s. Before that, the only way to access the island was by a ferry. Um, it's a very desirable location to vacation. It's a desirable location for retirees to have a home. It's a desirable location for people who have a second home to have a seasonal home here for the winter months. Um, I think a lot of people think of us as only a world-class destination. One of the things we work on every day uh, from the city administration staff perspective is making this a great community for those who live here, uh, live here for a year or live here uh, all year round, but, um, or a portion of the year. But, uh, that's one of our main goals is for this to be just a great small town to live in as well. So there's some other, I, I will admit, I am a huge fan of Sanibel mm -hmm. and my family has been going there for decades. So I, I have a, a warm spot in my heart for its, its warm mm -hmm. and beautiful beaches and shells. But there are some interesting dimensions I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about. So it is an incorporated city, but you have a very close relationship with the federal government. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, um, one of the features of the island is that uh, one of the national wildlife refuges, uh, the Ding Darling Refuge, is located here. Um, so a large portion of the island is dedicated landmass-wise to the refuge, about 40%. But if you add the land that the county, the city, and our nonprofits own on the island with the refuge, uh, we're at about 75-80% of the island is a conservation land and in perpetuity. So um, in addition to just shells and beaches, which you have up and down the coast, we have some very unique wildlife. We have a lot of opportunities to interact with wildlife. Um, we have population, a very healthy population of alligators, et cetera. Now, some people, when they come, they think they're going to the zoo. You know, they, they think you can go and show up at a certain time and see spoonbills and at a different time you see the alligators. But um, your opportunity on any given day to see a bobcat or a gopher tortoise or a sea turtle is fairly high because you're surrounded by this very protected natural environment that's home to many um, threatened and endangered species. So one, one other distinct feature of Sanibel I want to hear you um, elaborate on is in the light of this um, conservation district, it's also a, a community very committed to low density. Um, so one often thinks of Florida and Miami and high rises and so forth, but Sanibel's not that way. Talk a little bit about those, those regulations and why that's there. Well, any of the alum or students who have studied land planning probably have heard the phrase, the Sanibel plan. 
and it's uh, received many landmark awards because it's known as one of the few comp plans, comprehensive city plans, land use plans, that basically has been implemented exactly as it was uh, designed 40 years ago. And um, the focus, if you look at most municipal uh, land use, it's based on the use of the land. So you'll have an industrial area, heavy industry, uh, agriculture area, shopping center, uh, uh, residential. And Sanibel, and when it was originally incorporated, every parcel was evaluated for its environmental condition, wetlands, uplands, etc. And the land use and the density is assigned based on the environmental conditions of the island. So now based on our tourism uh, uh, being our number one industry, we don't have heavy industry, we don't have heavy manufacturing as you'd find in a lot of communities. Decades ago it was an agriculture town, it's not now. But you can on Sanibel have a retail shop and based on the difference in density and population there might be two homes next to it. But the density that can be assigned to each parcel, the protection of the wetlands. And then we also have a lot of other environmental land use requirements. We were one of the first cities to have a dark sky ordinance because of the sea turtles here. We uh, protect the coast with the, the lighting so we don't have a disorientation, nesting turtles. But that's become beneficial for birding. It's become beneficial for night sky viewing. And people just love the ambiance of the dark skies here on the island. Um, we have invested very heavily into our bike system, and uh, we have what we call a shared use path system, 26 miles of paths for pedestrians and bicyclists that you can travel the entire island, you know, by your bicycle. So we try to take a comprehensive look at land use, but the one thing that's been consistent since the city incorporated is the top of our hierarchy is to protect the natural environment. And some people, when they first moved here, they think it's balancing the natural environment with the human environment. That's not the Sanibel hierarchy. The top of the pyramid is protect the natural environment, and then all the human activity becomes secondary to that. Fascinating. Well, it sounds idyllic, and it must be idyllic to be the city manager there. It's just palm trees and <laughs> easy days and drinks with umbrellas, right? You've got nothing to worry about. What's it like being well, city? Well, no, and I've been doing this uh, here in a few weeks. I'll be starting my 20th year here. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges when you're hiring staff is people either think it's, a, it's one step into retirement or they think it, the, the entire job is retirement or it's all a cakewalk. But um, we work uh, to provide a high level service, um, uh, have a quality of life uh, that we try to say is, you know, the best that we can provide the most efficiently within the dollars we have. Uh, we try to really maintain a, a low tax base and uh, our city council and our elected officials are very committed to do that. So providing that high quality of service within the, you know, the tax dollars that we have is, can be a real challenge. So let's shift now to, to the, the pandemic and, and talk a little bit about what were your priorities as city manager and by extension, the community of Sanibel heading into COVID? I think January, February, 2020 here. What were, what were the key priorities for the city before COVID hit? When we're, we are, when we're in January and February, we really have three priorities, season, season, and season. 
Um, we're a very seasonally impacted community. I think you've been stuck in traffic here, like many other people on Sanibel, when they come down during tourist, uh, the peak of the tourist season. And a lot of our revenue is generated in those peak weeks and peak months. And additionally, uh, that's when we get our highest occupancy, both of people who come to stay and what we call day trippers, people who come over for the day. And as I mentioned earlier, we have one way on, on and off the island, and we have one major thoroughfare that goes down the spine of the island. And um, we will get twelve to 15,000 cars in season that are day trippers. And in your mind, envision a line of 12,000 cars all coming on the island wanting to get to a beach, wanting to get some seashells, wanting to eat a grouper sandwich and all need to leave by that evening. So uh, when we're going into season, and this year was anticipated to be probably a record-breaking season uh, for a lot of reasons with the economy, everything was looking great. Um, it was all about traffic management, people management, season, season, season. When Once we get to season, we always say it's nine months of preparation, then it's put your hand on the wheel and drive through the drive-through season. Okay, so that, that was all vehicular traffic, people traffic, then COVID hits. How, how soon did you realize that COVID would have an impact on Sanibel, and, and how did you know? What were the signals to you as city manager that something, something's gone awry? Well, personally, I would say it seemed like immediately the calendar was gobbled up by COVID. Florida overall reacted fairly early Early March, the governor declared a state of emergency. I think it was March 3rd. Um, we were in a meeting around March 3rd where we were gathered together, um, all the municipalities, to talk about hurricane season preparation, very early for that. And the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, said, oh, here at the end of the meeting, we're going to bring up a few things about this pandemic that people are starting to talk about. Um, by the end of March, our county was under a state of emergency, the state was under a state of emergency, and the city was under a state of emergency, so within weeks. But I also remember for the first couple of days when you were texting the word COVID, you know, you'd have to put it in or coronavirus. And the, I remember the first time it popped up on auto check as already a word in the dictionary. I thought, well, I think we've crossed the line where this is going to be with us for a while. The real thing. So now... You mentioned the, the, the state making an emergency order and same with the county. Was there any difference between East and West Coast? I mean, you're on the Gulf side. So for those of you who don't know Sanibel, you're nestled nicely there in the Gulf. But we often think of the sort of spring break um, destinations as all being down that Eastern seaboard. Was there any differential impact there? Uh, not initially. Initially, I think like a lot of states, when you had one case in the entire state or five cases and there were several counties and, the, you know, even late, there, just like Ohio, there were many counties that didn't have any cases for a while, particularly the rural counties. Um, the, um, the east and west coast, but the southern tip definitely had more impacts initially. But once the cases began to increase significantly, the Miami area and the Palm Beach area certainly became, they're a much more densely populated area of the state anyway. And by Memorial Day and definitely 4th of July, those areas were much heavier impacted than our part of the state. Yep. So city manager, you come to learn this is a, a problem that will cascade across the state. 
What, what levers do you have to try and respond? What were the ways that, that you responded both within the city and sort of throughout the community? Well, I think this is the appropriate time to say that as city manager, I'm very clear on my position, and that is I'm the administrator. The policymakers are the mayor and the city council, and they're elected by the community. Our council's unique. It's one of the unique ones in Florida. They serve for no compensation. They're totally volunteers, and they're citizens that want to make this a better town. That's why they ran to be on city council initially. So we always work as a team, our, the administrative staff, the community, and the citizens, and our elected officials. And during this, very much as a team. We've had a lot of community input, which Sanibel is notorious for it's a tradition here but during this uh, very high amount of citizen input on decisions and um, our council makes all the policy decisions then as city manager it's my job to implement but again it's with a lot of coordination but some of the very heavy lovers that we pulled very early and city council made these decisions um, one we immediately closed the public beach parking lots uh, very early, and those stayed closed from uh, March through June 1st initially, then we closed them again over the 4th of July weekend. But um, the city of Sanibel brings in several millions of dollars of our relatively small budget, comes in through beach parking. And it's $5 an hour to park at a Sanibel beach. It's, again, highly demand uh, product, uh, very high quality product. And in season, you cannot get those hours and those dollars back once you close those. Yeah. So once we knew we were closing the beaches, uh, I recommended to city council. And I, if someone told me a week earlier, I would be recommending uh, furloughing city employees. I would have not thought that could have even been possible. But within the, within the week of closing the beaches, out of our staff of 194, we furloughed 76 employees. That's a, that's a big percentage. That's an arm. It's, it's, it's very difficult. It makes it difficult to continue to provide services. We had to make some immediate decisions about some services to be cut. By June, we cut $3.1 million of services out of our budget, and we closed some programs. Some programs we felt we had no choice to close because of the pandemic, like the senior center. We call our center for life, but you wouldn't want to be operating a senior center during a pandemic where the elderly are disproportionately impacted. But other facilities like our recreation center, um, our iguana removal program, very popular here on the island. We had a number of those types of programs uh, that just because of the dollar availability and the uncertainty, um, you know, I've had to explain to more than one citizen since the pandemic bro broke is that unlike some levels of government, particularly the federal government, where there's flexibility on debt, et cetera, Cities have to you know, end the year with a balanced budget. So, uh, and of course, Florida does not have an income tax at the state level or the city level. It's property tax and state revenue sharing. And as a city right now, we're all sitting at the edge of our chairs because the state revenue sharing in Florida is usually fairly stable. It's not a number you worry about. And the state has pushed back the deadline several times when they're gonna notify us what they're predicting for the upcoming fiscal year for uh, money like gas tax, money like uh, state sales tax, which here is a, is a major revenue source. So let's go back to the furloughs. You mentioned at the very beginning, you've had the honor of serving almost for two decades now. Anything like this in the past where you've had to make such cataclysmic 
sort of personnel and financial decisions? Like, do you remember a time when you've had to furlough before? No, it actually, during the economic downturn, we took a lot of pride in being able to um, make all of our um, adjustments personnel-wise through attrition, either reassigning, retraining, uh, not filling retirements, et cetera. And sometimes you don't get all the retirements right where you want the attrition, et cetera. But we were able to make that through without, you know, the, the you know, what some people call the recession, the Great Recession, uh, um, without any furloughs. So this was dramatic, immediate, and um, it included em employees, you know, with 30 years. Uh, but based on their operation, that we just would not be able to have been able to get through the season in the year if we had kept all those employees on. So let's talk about another difficult thing about being a city manager. Um, I would imagine, it's funny, we we often celebrate local government as this amazing interface between the government and the people. Um, so often when you're encouraging a student to consider a career in public service and they really want that close connection, local government is the place where that can occur. But there's a, a other side to the coin. Um, that's also the place where you hear most vociferously when the public are unhappy about things. So you mentioned that the, the city council serves voluntarily. They're not, not getting compensation for that. Um, what, what's the tenor of community engagement like right now? What are you feeling? So like um, how amenable has the population been to some things that have caused a lot of consternation around the country like mask orders? I'll talk a little bit about that public interaction. Mm -hmm. Well, again, just because our council serves without pay, they even before the pandemic, they were working more than 40 hours on their on their duties. They take it very seriously. They bring a lot of skill, they bring a lot of education, and they bring a lot of passion to the job. And they very much do a lot of the communication as well. Um, and they read every email, they respond to them. And again, we do that all as a team. Um, I would say, like everyone, I've noticed and experienced over this last five, six months, a different tone than there has been in the past. Now, overall, Sanibel, again, we have a population that's engaged, educated. For decades, we've had a rules of civility, and I'd say most people very much honor those. And the basis of our rules of civility is that we may disagree on policy and position, but you always respect the other person's right to a different opinion and their right to express that opinion. Um, I have responded to some people recently saying that I can hear their anger and I can hear their fear. And I don't know anyone who's lived through the pandemic who has not experienced anger and fear over these last five months. Um, I try to be a buffer for our employees that they don't have to be the brunt of those. Um, and of course, one of the things I'm concerned about, we have like most of the, at least here in Florida, local governments, we now have a no contact setup at the office. We're doing a lot of Zoom calls and Microsoft team calls and meeting. You can still drop your building permits off, but you drop them off out of, you know, a drop off window. You don't come in, that sort of thing. And we're, so we've not stopped any services, but we definitely are having less face to face service. And particularly here, I would say, like, we have the cheers model, you know, people want to go to City Hall, everybody knows their name type thing. And it's more difficult to resolve disputes, obviously, when you, or, you know, just respond to people if they're already angry and you don't have that opportunity to talk to them face to face. So 
um, it's definitely been part of the challenge is the, the civility of the discord. But overall, we have had in place since June 30th a, a facial coverings uh, requirement. Um, it's for indoors at this point only. Um, the vote was not unanimous on that. A uh, lot of debate and discussion before it was adopted. It's the only city in Lee County right now, um, other than Fort Myers Beach, that has adopted a facial covering. Every city has debated it. And the debate's not uh, in any way was about our mask and facial coverings and an effective tool or device that people should utilize during the pandemic. The debate has been more over what level of government appropriately makes those recommendations and what's the role of personal decision-making and personal responsibility versus government requirement. So I'm intrigued, just a moment ago, you mentioned rules of civility. Are these formalized in some way for how you interact as elected officials, or is that broader and it's this expectations for, for the citizenry writ large as they interface with the council, et cetera? Talk a little bit uh, more about that. They were adopted um, about almost uh, probably 17, 18 years ago after some very heated discourse had occurred, and um, they're on every council agenda. Uh, the rules of civility are posted. and um, in my tenure here, we've never had to eject anyone from a council meeting, but there's been on just a very, very few occasions where people have had to be reminded of the rules of civility. And um, so I believe there's a, for those people who come to the council chambers and, and want to share, um, it doesn't take long to realize that it's a two-sided street. And you might, you know, that if, you, if I want people to take the time to listen to my ideas, then my part of that bargain is that I'm going to listen to other people's dialogue as well. Now let's pivot and start looking to the future and um, in the sunny days in Sanibel uh, next spring break. What, what impact do you think COVID will have on Sanibel in years to come? Is this just an abrupt disruption or are there some more enduring impacts that you are forecasting for this? For the well, there's been some surprising impacts already. Um, in directions on both sides, up and down, that were not expected, and some that I think are just an acceleration of some trends that you already saw. Um, for example, retail, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the retail uh, package looks like. Um, being a destination, a lot of our retail products are unique, so people want to obtain them, but uh, people are, have, there's some uh, customer hesitancy to necessarily you know people say i want to get to the beach and get away i want to open a chair and sit on the beach or sit on a blanket i don't necessarily want to go into stores yet so there the demand for the shopping i would say is weaker than the demand for beaches at this point so where do the where does the shopping fit in when you're seeing what's happening with other retail around the country um had a very good discussion this morning with the chamber of commerce on how they're looking at designing the holiday season to see what they can do for the retail shop, shop local, shop Sanibel type uh, campaign um, and emphasize the no touch there, and but yet try to make it safe for, for everybody to feel comfortable, the workers in the shops as well as the people visiting the shops. Um, the one that I think has surprised everybody has been real estate in Southwest Florida. Um, we have actually held our prices and seen a, a, a a major gobbling up of supply 
and a little bit of actually increase in property. Uh, when we received our property valuations, again, our number one source of revenue in Florida for cities is property tax. And uh, our property values were up about 2.6%. Now that was not based on much of the pandemic yet, but um, we have more than held our own on real estate. Seems to be being driven by a lot of things because of the things we talked about earlier, like low density and outdoors, you know, uh, people that can work anywhere right now, telecommute from anywhere. They're thinking I might as well telecommute from a place on Sanibel versus a, you know, a lot of other cities where I might have to get on public transportation or be living a high rise or something. So, uh, so far, the real estate has been holding its own uh, very well. Uh, visitation, it's going to be interesting. We watched some of the big leaders uh, just today. Disney made a major announcement that they're seeing cancellations and, you know, they're, they're making money again, but it's not at the level even their anticipated lower level, they're not hitting those numbers, but they're having enough visitation to be profitable, but their staffing is way down from where it was. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, and it seems like it's driven all by the cases. Every time we've had one of these spikes, you see a cancellation wave that goes with that for people, you know, coming to Florida. So what about the operation of government itself? You and your role as city manager, do you see major changes like teleworking or things like that that'll become more commonplace for you? Absolutely. Some of the things that government um, sometimes has been slower to embrace with the thought, you know, we have to have a hard copy of this. We can't do this electronically. Um, a lot of that has moved very rapidly to a online. I, you know, I don't know when there'll be the next uh, conference, the Florida City Managers, the Florida League of Cities, International League of Cities, National League of Cities, uh, you know, all those meetings have went online and virtual. And, and when you see the amount of time and money for traveling to them, you wonder if they'll ever come back. I mean, there's a great, um, uh, you know, loss with the lack of networking and social distancing. I know, you know, all of our colleagues want to get together to be able to share and, and particularly now, uh, you know, share notes and, and plans, but the telecommunicating, absolutely. The amount of, you know, the size of a city hall, what a city hall has to look like, uh, the push to program, um, you know, and I've always been a believer that in every state I've worked in is that there's, there's real opportunities in the lower levels of government for efficiencies that have never been embraced because of political fiefdoms or, you know, political seats, et cetera. And I think, you know, the idea, for example, if you're in Ohio, um, you know, would you need every township hall? Do you need every, uh, you know, how much of that can be consolidated uh, regionally, dis police dispatch centers, et cetera. And does some of that come out of, I mean, our, everybody's experience during COVID? You once shared with me years ago in a previous conversation about what makes Sanibel unique from a management perspective is uh, two things. You said hurricanes and alligators. <laughs> it's, it's different in Cleveland and Columbus, you know, right? We don't, we, don't right. Have, we don't have alligators. And the way you described it is that those were uncertainties that, you know, people interfaced with alligators and got in trouble and they shouldn't go pet the alligators. Mm. Um, and hurricanes, you never know when one's going to come. And so you have to keep financial reserves around. But in a low tax environment, that's, that's very, very hard. 
So you, you describe those as major management challenges. Where do you put the pandemic in that sort of array of, of challenges? Is this comparable or is this just so different and so unique that there's just nothing you can do to prepare for something like this? Well, I think your reserve, your personal reserve of strength and leadership and perseverance and faith and, uh, you know, um, all of that comes to bear in an emergency, and no matter if it's a hurricane, alligator. I have a team here that we've been through one direct hit and two pretty good haircuts from hurricanes. And they've all mentioned, I mean, I'm talking about chiefs of police and public works directors and community service directors. When you have that, even if you get a direct hit, after the fourth or fifth day, you've kind of moved into the recovery mode. You know, there's this great anticipation, you have the hit. And then after that, it's um, pick up the sticks and do a recovery. And those models are pretty well established now. Um, you know, you might get more fatalities or less fatalities, but you know what to expect out of it if you've been through it once or twice. The magnitude, the length of this, the depth of it, the impact on the citizenry, totally without precedent. I mean, to say we're in uncharted water, we're navigating through uncharted waters is, is more than an understatement. It's um, no matter how much you would have prepared, it's, there's nothing that brings something close to bear to what this is on a day-to-day -day basis. Some days you come in and it just feels like it's Groundhog Day. It's like, oh, another day of Zoom calls and watching gubernatorial press conferences and presidential advisories and council meetings and you're kind of in a pattern and then you have a you come in a day and everything's thrown out and uh you know you have a big case count or test came back different or um you know i'd say the one thing that's also different on this pandemic is the fact that about half your job is managing the city and the other half is you're still a city manager so just the, i would say on a daily basis basis when you go home to put your pen on the pillow what keeps you up isn't so much it's not to minimizing how difficult the community issues are but you know it's the is there anything else we can do to make our police officers safer when they're responding to calls is there anything else we can do to make our workforce safer uh, what do you do when an employee spouse is covid positive and they still want to work or they're an essential employee and it's all day long there's a series of issues and that's a moving target you know the cdc has moved and changed and i'm not critical of it because we're learning more about this terrible disease you know what's the recommended treatment what's the recommended time to be out of the office those all have changed during the course of this so you've got to be careful you don't say we're always going to do it this way because by the next day, you may be doing everything differently. One last question related to this, and we'll wrap mm -hmm. this up. So I teased you by saying you have an idyllic job in an idyllic place, mm -hmm. but everything you're describing sounds just so exhausting and so stressful. And, and you, as you point out, are responsible for a city and the, the infrastructure behind it, the people that make it happen. How do, how do you stay sane? How do you keep your mental health up? I uh, can imagine this would wear one down, having to see citizens struggling, to see your employees struggling, to have to let people go, uh, to furlough them. How, how do you keep it together? 
Well, I'd have to say I, around June 20th, uh, when it was the solstice, the longest day of the year is always my favorite day of the year because you get the most out of it. And I realized I had not been outside. My daily routine had been wake up, get to the office, and spend about 17, 18 hours at the computer. Again, either Zoom calls, council calls. And um, I just I just needed a break that I've now made a point of an hour a day out in the sunshine. Uh, it's usually after five, but I just, I it's been a lifesaver for me. I know that um, I realized that I was at the point where if I didn't, if I didn't book it, it wasn't getting done. And there's all there's always another day to do a few more emails, it seems like. I hear you. Well, we're wishing good thoughts for you and the community of Sanibel and hoping you do get some break and we all get some respite for this from this. But thanks so much for piling over just an amazing community and, uh, and doing your profession great pride and how well you do your job. Thanks for talking with us today, Judy. Well, I would be amiss if I didn't thank you personally for everything you've done for the college and for the university. I've been so proud and so impressed with everything you've done in your tenure. And I continue to be and a, a great fan of you personally, as well as the university and the college. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And the, the sentiment is mutual. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>